What's up, everyone, and welcome back to the show. I love doing this podcast, and I'm grateful to have the support of two of the most popular and respected companies in the Bitcoin space. If you already know all about how River and CoinKite can help you buy and secure your Bitcoin, skip ahead 75 seconds. If not, keep listening. CoinKite makes some of the most badass Bitcoin hardware there is. Their flagship product is the Cold Card Hardware Wallet, a feature-rich tool for taking self-custody of your Bitcoin, which has been a favorite of hardcore Bitcoiners for many years. CoinKite is also the maker of the wildly popular Block Clock series, which are standalone or wall-mounted devices which track and display things like the current Bitcoin block height, the sats per fiat exchange rate, the Bitcoin price, and many other data points of interest to a Bitcoin enthusiast. It might not sound that exciting, but it's almost bizarrely satisfying to be able to glance over at it and watch as new blocks are added to the chain. The recently released Block Clock Micro, a smaller and more affordable option, is now available at their store. Check it out, along with a ton of other stuff for securely using and having some fun with your Bitcoin at CoinKite.com. River allows you to securely buy Bitcoin, zero fee dollar cost average, and purchase hosted mining rigs. Also, their Lightning service enables developers and companies to integrate Lightning payments into their applications without having to run any Lightning infrastructure themselves. I recommend River because of their excellent customer service, stellar team, and for their principled and dedicated approach to building a next-generation financial services business on Bitcoin. To get started, visit river.com today. Jacob, how are you? I'm doing well. Good morning. Good morning. Thank you for um, getting up and getting sorted at this early hour to have this discussion. I appreciate it very much. Yeah, absolute pleasure. I'll tell you what, I've been getting up early lately i used to sleep in a lot as a young man and the last few weeks i've had a little bit of a paradigm shift you know those commas in your life for your journal i've had a uh -huh. bit of a paradigm shift and i've been watching the sunrise the last few weeks uh out the back of the house and normally one of my sons comes and sits in my lap while we do it and i'm feeling a million bucks i like getting up early <laughs> yeah well that sounds like a pretty magical moment i mean i think for for anything in life that requires uh well, either a departure from routine or a certain amount of discipline, you need something inspiring that pulls you toward it, right? It can't just be all push, right? You need something to pull you. And it sounds like a majestic sunset with your son on your lap is a pretty nice, you know, thing to get you up and out of bed in the morning. Yeah, it, it's great. But, you know, another thing that helps keep that momentum going is just results. Uh, I met a doctor friend of mine and he said, just get up and go outside and watch the sunrise, you know, no glasses on. Uh, you know, this whole red light, blue light, Jack Cruz sort of stuff. Mm -hmm. And um, after do, after doing it for four days, I've been waking up 15 minutes before sunrise without an alarm, just effortlessly wow. for weeks now. And that's not a thing that would be, I'm not a, I'm not a big sleeper in because I'm busy, uh, but I'm always purely getting out of bed on willpower, probably because I stay up too late reading and fighting with people on Twitter or whatever it is. But uh, <laughs> no, I'm, en I'm enjoying it. It's It's good. Yeah, well, I was, I'm in your boat. I mean, I, I, I've always relied on the the alarm, even when I was getting up at like you know, or especially when I was getting up at five thirty or or whatever to go work out in the mornings. But I, I think I that's my next thing. I need to um, try to wean myself off the alarm. You know, for one, because I mean, it's just a more pleasant way of waking up. You know, you have that thing that just usually it's an awful sound, and it you know you snooze it a couple times, and it just seems like that's a horrible way to get the day started, you know, you know, like just naturally waking up at a reasonable time and then going on and going on about your day seems like the way to do it. So I think that will be a good pro project for me to, uh, to start with. Um, 
but just, you know, for everyone who's listening and doesn't yet, you know, maybe know much about you, can you give us the brief introduction into, you know, who you are and what you do and, and we can find our way from there? Yeah, sure. I, uh, it's always strange for me to introduce myself a little bit, I guess, because if depending on how far back we go, but when I introduce myself, I listen to myself and I go, geez, that guy's full of crap because I've had a really varied, uh, I guess, life since I've, since I've left school. So just I'll run through it pretty quick, but I left school end of year 10. I was uh, just turning 15 and I went and worked for my father for four years in a CD DVD store. My family had a chain of record stores. Cool. Uh, I remember fun. a custom. Oh, it was heaps of fun. I absolutely loved it. And it wasn't really the type of industry where you had rapport with customers. It was, you know, walk in. I want a Johnny Cash album, sell them Johnny Cash album and they leave again. And especially the demographic that uh, our store that I was working in was located. There was a lot of pensioners, um, you know, a lot of just older people, uh, a high level of, I guess, well, welfare people with um, dis disabilities, all these sorts of things. That was just the suburb we were in. And I built up an amazing rapport with a, an absolute slew of customers to the point that I'd have some customers come in and just go, you know, what album am I, am I getting this week? And I said, oh, look, I, I think you'd really <laughs> like this one. 30 bucks, 30 bucks for a CD, you know, uh, 16, 17 years ago. And they just buy it. And uh, that wasn't really normal. And I guess that's where my, my passion for sales and customer service really, really started developing. I remember I had one uh, couple that used to come in and they see my father. They were uh, uh, Katrina and Jacko were their names and they wanted real obscure things. And I think early on, I mishandled a transaction and overcharged them or forgot to put something in the bag or whatever it was. And they, they used to come in and, and just wait for dad. They didn't want to be served by anyone else. They just wait for my father. And then one day dad couldn't find something. He was serving them and we we're always importing obscure heavy metal things and European films for them. And while dad was searching for them, you know, I was late teenager, starting to get a bit more familiar on the internet than him. And I was over on another website and he said, no, nah, I can't find it anywhere. And I said, dad, I think I've got it. And I showed him the screen and we got it in for them. And then the next time they came in a few days later, and this couple was spending three, $400 a week with us. So they were easily our biggest wow. spenders in a little record store. The next week they came in, they stood there and dad saw them. So he's come over to serve them. And I'm standing on another computer with another customer. And they looked at dad and I remember it so vividly. Dad goes, Rodio, you know, how, how are you going today? How can I help? And they just shook their head and real curtly sort of jabbed their finger over to me. We want to see him. And I became their guy and we got along so well. And when we closed the store, because um, I remember LimeWire coming out and I downloaded a new Arctic Monkeys album in like 30 seconds flat. And I'm saying to dad, our business is toast. There's no way. The, the album wasn't even released yet. The album was set for release in three weeks or something. And uh, that was the writing on the wall. And we worked out our lease and closed the store down and said bye to uh, all of our great customers. But that was just in the trenches, retail 101 seven days a week we're doing 80 90 hours a week i did opens i did closes i did the banking and this is all as a uh, teenager so i had an absolute blast there and then my parents and i purchased a local bicycle store that was for sale because it wasn't doing very well and we've had that store for over a decade now we ended up buying a block of land and developing it putting a bigger building on it so our bicycle store is about 1200 meters 
uh, square space, uh, floor space. So I don't know how that um, translates into feet, but it's not a small store. Mm. We've got a cafe inside of the bike shop that runs seven days a week. Uh, and then a few years ago, I took an interest in farming. So I've, I've now started uh, direct-to-market farming. So we're raising beef, pork, chicken, lamb, eggs, got a few ancillary enterprises like honey and a, a fruit, all, all sorts of strange different things. I had to buy my own butchery because there was an instant bottleneck in production and, and no one locally could sort of satisfy my needs, all my wants in terms of how my animals were being cut up. So, you know, that's a, another whole beast. And along the way, I've done some strange things. I used to import guitars and flick them on eBay. I used to buy handmade tobacco pipes off uh, producers all around the world and sell them on a little website I had called Pipes Down Under. These artisan, I've got some on the shelf over here, but, you know, some of these pipes I was selling were four or $5,000 a piece. Beautiful what? little one-of-a-kind tobacco pipes, like what, like what your grandpa might have smoked, but uh, really artistic and people would try to put collection um, collections together from certain styles certain periods certain producers certain countries and I got deep in that world for a few years and wow. I ended up getting out of that because I wanted to focus on the bike shop for the family yeah always got little side hustles I breed dogs as well um holy shit just, Man, I like being busy it's funny you bring up the the, the pipe thing because <clears throat> my my price my most prized possession is basically um my grandfather smoked a pipe when he was in the Navy and his pipe was like, I don't know if it was Navy issue, but it had Navy like uh, symbols and stuff on it. Anyways, when he died, you know, five, 10 years ago um, and everyone was just kind of figuring out his estate and his belongings and stuff like that, this came up and they asked anyone if they wanted it. And, you know, everyone said no, cause it's got a little chip on the mouthpiece and it's just kind of an old pipe, but I took it because, you know, one, I, I had a tremendous relationship with him, admire the hell out of him for many different reasons. And there was so like, you know, a pipe is a very intimate thing, right? Not, not only because, you know, you have it in your mouth all the time, but you're, you know, it's always in your hand and you can see the, the places on the pipe where the hand has kind of rubbed the color away a little bit and you can see the bite marks and the thing. And I just thought it was the coolest thing ever. So I took it and, you know, again, like I said, to this day, I, it's one of my favorite things that I had that I own. Well, if he was the sort of gentleman that uh, had it with him frequently, it becomes an extension of him. Yeah, exactly. Doesn't it? Like it's, it's I remember selling people pipes and, and they're trying to buy them online, right? And they're, they're, something that would come up was, does it suit me? Because aesthetics has a lot to do with it. People wanted a pipe that would sit in them and it'd suit them. And it's sort of like a pair of sunglasses or a hat. Like quite often they don't suit you the first time you put it on. But once you've lived in it for a couple of weeks, it becomes part of you. Like go and buy the most outrageous pair of sunnies you can. After a while, the sunnies are you, even though yeah. they're, you know, you, you got a star-shaped red frame sunnies and they look <laughs> ridiculous. But after a while, you know, your Bootsy Collins, they're your sunnies. Yeah. Well, you could you, like, it's almost like it conforms to you a bit and you conform to it and, you know, it becomes part of your identity or, or, births another aspect of your identity that previously wasn't given expression or given you know given air or something like that i totally agree um all right so you you go through that enterprise you go back to uh the bicycles and this is like a, we're talking like road bikes and mountain bikes and that kind of stuff like a boutique sort of bike shop so we really tried to angle to mar and pa uh you know in just like a lot of businesses i guess the lower end of the market the cheaper bicycles have a bigger margin percentage and 
Uh, the stock doesn't age as well. The skill set for staff needed to to sell it, to work on it easier. And I just saw that. My, one of my big things in business is the path of least resistance. Mm-hmm. And that doesn't mean uh, be a wimp. It doesn't mean steal. Like it doesn't mean any of those things. It just means, you know, where is your time best served meeting the market? Where are you going to get the, the best return for your effort, which uh, by proxy means you're giving the best service? Uh, so we really focused on that mum and dad market and mountain biking sort of naturally grew alongside that. That's just what our region uh, wanted. In two, We purchased the store in 2011 and in 2013, I hosted an electric bike expo so people could come and test drive uh, demonstrator models of electric bicycles. And there was only three suppliers in Australia at the time who had electric bikes. Two were real cheap uh, you know, just slapped together quite like very heavy. I think one still had lead acid batteries at that stage. And then the third one was Gazelle, like a beautiful handmade uh, Dutch bicycle. And the whole industry laughed at me because I don't have a cycling background. You got to imagine everyone in the cycling world who works in short stores and own stores, all the reps, all the owners of the distributors, they're all professional cyclists. The, the whole industry is so entrenched. Like it's this, it's a full cottage industry. And I don't have a cycling background. We just entered as merchants, a family of merchants. And the whole industry laughed at me for having e-bikes. And I persevered. And I like to think I sort of uh, put a bit of a notch on the on the belt with that one because now, uh, end of last year, end of 22, the industry did some surveying and electric bicycles are contributing on average 40% revenue per store. Wow. Uh, so, I, you know, I... I, I it's really easy to sort of get stuck in your own prejudice. Like if you're if you're a professional triathlete who's purchased a bike shop, by proxy, you're going to be selling triathlete bicycles, triathlon gear when the market's telling you it wants e-bike, but you think e-bikes suck or they're a hack or they're cheating and you don't care. You're not thinking about the fact that your customers love them and they want them. Mm-hmm. So we, we've actually, one of the rules of my family has always been to buy businesses that we're not interested in. So interestingly, my dad hates music. He'd rather silence or AM radio, <laughs> talkback radio, but he bought a record store for the same reason. So you know, no if bias. you're into heavy metal, you fill the shelf up with heavy metal records, even though your local demographic wants country. Now you can cut through those things on, like if you've got a .com, for instance, it might make a lot more sense to niche. Uh, mm-hmm. But if, if you're opening bricks and mortar retail, like what we've always done, we've always just tried to peel the blinkers off and service the market. But that's a complete contradiction to my current mission on the farm, which I'm very passionate about. Well, tell me how you got into that. So how do you go from from bikes, selling bikes to selling meat and operating a regenerative farm? Sure. Well, I married my uh, wife in 14, 2014. And then we, we moved, we actually uh, purchased a house together and we moved in together the day after we got married. So both come from Christian families, quite traditional um, conservative background. So we did everything the right way and we moved in the day after. And we, uh, you know, it was a little while and I started, you know, you got a home all of a sudden before then I've been living out of my van. I, I, you know, I got my license. I didn't want to move out of house because I didn't want to spend the money on a, on a rental. So I just drift around hanging out with friends, sleeping in the back of my van, wherever I was. And then we moved in, we had a garden to tend to. So I thought I'll put some veggies in and I'm a rabbit holer. You know, you get into interested in something and I buy the books I get on YouTube, I listen to the podcast, I get quite obsessive. My wife's always laughing, you know, what's the next obsession going to be? And I got right into organic gardening, looking up no-till gardening, all these different ways of maximizing your yield 
in terms of you know gross quality and uh, quantity out of your small urban backyard. And I was just going down the rabbit hole on YouTube and I came across a video by this famous American farmer called Joel Salatin and the thumbnail was clickbait. It was on the side of the you know suggested videos and it said this farmer buys land at $15 an acre and I knew it was clickbait but I clicked on it anyway. And the, the, the idea there was with $15 per acre worth of infrastructure, Joel Salatin claims that he doubles his productivity. Therefore, it's the same as buying more land. And I just thought that was really interesting because my dad had 100 acres out of town and 100 acres in our area is a hobby farm. Like it's a place to put a couple of ponies out the back mm. and run some house chickens and no one's taking you seriously as a farmer. And I, I, I became really... Um, snatched up by the romanticism and the um, the earnest sort of nature of the way Joel Salatin described farming. Like it really appealed to me. And I was on a health journey at the same time. Lots of allergy issues, skin issues, nasal issues. I've sort of been, I wouldn't say a frail child, but just like constantly burdened by little things niggling away at me. And I was on a bit of a health journey at the same time. So I said to dad, can I lease the farm off you when I want to start moving cows around and I want to get some chickens. And if I can get enough chickens, maybe I'll get an egg license and I'll wholesale the eggs back to our cafe in town. And that just became, that became it now. So now I lease 300 acres and I'm currently discussing to lease another 200 more. I don't own any farmland. Uh, and like I said, we've got, you know, I've probably got a hundred cattle at the moment, about 70 ewes, sheep, thousand egg laying chickens. We're doing a few hundred meat birds every month. Uh, pigs, we've got, we got rolling batches of pigs. We're sending off about a dozen pigs to slaughter every fortnight. And I've got a, I've got a butchery with two full-time butchers and we're selling all the, everything as cuts of meat to the end consumer. And our, our farms, it's, it's sort of nothing like what our current mindset might be of a traditional farm. But if we go back in time and think about what a traditional farm might have been 200 years ago, it's probably a lot more similar to that, having all these different animals on the one property and then everything's always rotating. So we're always trying to observe natural systems, uh, cattle being migratory, flocks of birds chasing migratory, uh, ruminant herds, all these sorts of things. We're trying to wrap all these uh things that we learn off nature together and and execute them on our farm the best we can to step away from uh, constant uses of pharmaceutical inputs in synthetic fertilizers which we've used nothing of since I started in 2019 we've never drenched an animal like we never wormed an animal uh, we don't use antibiotics we don't we sort of circumnavigate all these inputs uh, and by just relying on good old-fashioned management with technology things like electric fence and running water are important to us mm -hmm. man i got so many questions but off the top so you're in australia you're allowed to do all that not do the the antibiotics and not you know like you can just run a farm how you like and sell what you what you produce it, it really depends on the the short answers uh yes i think i'm involved in so many different things that keeping up to date on, on uh the legalist agenda is kind of a but for example job in its raw, own milks, right. raw milk's illegal in canada right can you sell yeah, raw that's milk well, that's that's com that's completely contraband here but the difference between that and the other example you gave me is uh raw milk's an output and the use of yeah, antibiotics is an input 
I so see. I'd imagine that if you had a if you had a feedlot or a factory farm, it might not be a legal requirement to use antibiotics, but you would have a duty of care in terms of code of conduct and animal welfare mm. uh, to sort of to, to sort of uh, maintain health to a standard, and it'd be impossible in those environments to do that without these. Uh, pharmaceutical inputs so I've you know on our farm we have uh, really good outcomes so there's there's no pressure to rely on these inputs right so so you said you're uh, leasing 300 acres is 100 still from your family and then 200 acres adjacent from someone else or are they in different areas so they're all in different areas. I lease two properties, 100 acres each off my parents, and they're about an hour apart. So uh, during COVID, my family bought a sort of like a holiday house weekender about an hour out of town, and that had 100 acres on it. So I farm cattle and pigs on that property. And then I've picked up another 100 acres, five minutes around the corner for me from a from a Bitcoiner that I mentored a, met at a farm tour, uh, which was pretty cool. Amazing. And I'm talking to another property owner about an hour north. So the the distance that we're spreading the, the business apart is a challenge uh, and it makes management uh, difficult and, you know, a lot of complexity to manage. But the, the reality is that we can't find adjacent properties. You know, they don't exist because most of our neighbours have horses and plenty of money and would rather you're not on their property at all. You know, it, it it doesn't sort of, there's no benefit to them in that equation. Because in, in my area, you, your annual cost of leasing is about 1% of the value of the farm. So it's, land here is selling for about anywhere from ten dollars to $13,000 an acre. And your annual cost of leasing is around $120 to $150. So, you know, like on one hand, why would you buy? But on the other hand, there is actually a fair bit of demand for that lease market as well because the value is so good. So we are spreading out. We we do intend on buying our own land uh, because we, we need to have some more fixed infrastructure, things like our own abattoir. I think it's only a matter of time till we get pushed out of the local processing uh, market pure, for, for, mul for a multitude of reasons and, you know, just their own efficiency and, you know, being one of them, they're just not going to want to deal with small producers like me anymore. And, you know, my wife and I, we'd love to live on some land. We're living in suburbia here, farming 300 acres. I got to, I drive 10 minutes out to the farm every morning. I've got, I'm looking out the window here. I've got six neighbors touching my house. I want to get out of here. Right. Yeah. I, I can relate to that. So what, what was it like at the beginning? Cause I mean, I, I take the point that as farms go, this is perhaps still on a pretty small scale, but I mean, for someone just effectively new to this and coming in and uh, being sold on the regenerative ranching or agriculture ethos or philosophy uh, and being, and as you say, like it's, you kind of romanticize about it because everyone, or not everyone, but a lot of people, especially Bitcoiners, imagine being sovereign in that way, right? Having land, working land, having that connection, being able to uh, support yourself with sustenance from it and doing it the right way, et cetera, et cetera. So what was it like, like at the beginning, you know, how, to, how, what was this, the gap between how you romanticized about it and the reality of being knee deep in, in shit basically? Uh, and, you know, give me some thoughts and, and what the experience was like in the early days. Yeah, sure. Look, in the beginning, I was doing uh, all the chores by myself and it wasn't a full-time job because, you know, right at the start, uh, maybe I had a few hundred chickens and 20 cows and four pigs. And that was sort of the starting crop. And I was still working full-time in the bike shop. So I'd, I'd race out of the morning, let the chickens out of their pen, make sure they had food, 
race into the bike shop, head out afterwards, move the cows, you know, just chaos, just um, yeah. uh, pandemonium. And my, my staff eventually in the bike shop uh, eventually approached me and said, oh, we're going to take you off the roster, which when they first told me that, I was a little bit uh, put off. I was a little bit offended because I thought, well, this is my shop and, and you're overstepping it. And those are things I was thinking in my head and you're making me feel inadequate, like I'm not pulling my weight and, and you know, you'd be better off without me. But then as the conversation went, they said, Jake, you know, we've watched you um, slave your guts out for the last seven years. You've got a son, uh, you've got a wife, and you're really passionate about this farming stuff. Like, we just want to free you up that you can chase the things that you're involved in. And I thought, you know, what a beautiful thing. And the, and the shop's never run better since I <laughs> got kicked out of the place. <laughs> so um, I was running back and forward a lot. And I'll tell you what, you know, the infrastructure on the farm was non-existent. And, and what I mean by that was we just had the, the normal fences that dad built when he bought the farm, you know, in the early 2000s or whatever it was. And there was no irrigation, so I couldn't pump water to animals. I had to cart water. The number one rule, everyone listening who goes and buys a farm, don't cart water. Put your infrastructure in first. Carting water is a mugs game. What I mean by that is filling up buckets or barrels and driving yeah. it to the animals. Like it's an absolute nightmare. It's the biggest time pit you'll have. And I was doing all these things that I tell people not to do now, but I was absolutely loving it because it was farming and that was what I wanted to do. And I was really excited to be with my chickens and be with my cows and and watch them and learn from them and and, and be productive with them. And so over it, it, very quickly, I put labor on. So now the farm's got two full-time farm hands and I've got two full-time butchers and I'm basically uh, off the chores on the farm. Unfortunately, I'd like to be on the chores more than I am, but the the level where the farm business is at, like I sort of float around my stores and fill pressure points. And the current pressure point is uh, inventory control and order packing and sending. The Australia is such a big place and it's so difficult to do refrigerated frozen freight around the country and we're not shipping enough produce yet to justify paying someone to do it so that's the pressure point that I'm investing my time to scale at the moment but you know as I got help on the farm I employed this farmer uh, Michael he's still with me three years later it, we we gauge how tall the trees are but like he planted a few thousand trees on the farm for us and every now and then I want to know how old they are. So I think about how old his first daughter is because he planted them just after she was born. And it's just this really cool, you know, he's become part of the farm. Uh, it's, it's so nice having a trusted hand like that around the place. But as help turned up and then we rolled out some really basic infrastructure, which took me months to wrap my head around because I'm not a handy guy. I'm, I'm not a Mr. Fixer Upper. I remember employing a uh, Sparky one day to come and replace the extraction fan in our shower. I couldn't do it and I watched him do it and I was so embarrassed he just climbed up a step ladder twisted <laughs> it out of the ceiling unplugged it out of the socket plugged the new one in from the hardware store and clicked it in and I thought I didn't even I didn't even attempt because I'm so not handy well I forced yeah. myself to become handy now uh through multiple demasculating uh, emasculating <laughs> events like that but once we got this infrastructure and in, I guess the point was is that I'm trying to make is the infrastructure took me months to wrap my head around how to roll it out how to get a solar pump to suck out of a dam uh, and, and prime two kilometers of pipe under the ground, all these sorts of things. And now when we're leasing a block, like this last hundred acres that I leased from the, um, the Bitcoin around the corner, we rolled out infrastructure in two days because we had a look at the farm. We downloaded a Google map. 
got the pen and paper out, ordered the materials, got it delivered and just rolled it out. And it was easy peasy. And, you know, I sort of feel like we've gone through those first few years of earning our stripes and, and, and muddling through being absolutely clueless. And now for like, for me personally, in our operation, I watch other regenerative farmers in Australia and around the world get online every now and then and have a whinge about how hard it is because the pigs keep getting out or how hard it is because foxes keep eating their chickens. And these aren't things, uh, thankfully, that we seem to deal with very often because I guess the, the, the mentality of our operation is if, it, if something like that goes wrong, that's our fault and the systems aren't good enough. You just need to improve your systems and your infrastructure. I don't want to be wasting my time chasing pigs off the highway and, and sitting out at nighttime shooting foxes. There, there are systems out there to manage these things. There's infrastructure and management and we're just uh, aggressively proactive about those things because the, the ROI for putting pigs back into a paddock is horrendous. As soon as a pig is out of its paddock, it's an absolute liability. It goes on the road. It's like it's like hitting a cow. Mm. You know, you just can't have it. And and I watch farmers all over the place have their pigs all over the countryside. So you just need to have that uh, abundance mindset and, and not that poverty mindset that everything's too hard and just do the work. Amen. Um, so was it kind of what you were expecting? You know, just the last point on on the the beginning of all this was as you were doing all that initial work and making those mistakes and figuring out how to get your way through, were you, were you happy about it? Was, were you like, yes, this is, this was the right decision, you know, and, and it was satisfying you in the way that you thought it, it would. Yeah. I'm, I'm enjoying the farming business more probably than I thought I would. I don't really uh, look ahead too far. I'm not a massive planner. I've never had two year, five year, Plan. So when I started doing the farming on the property, initially it was just to feed my family. And then I thought, well, I'm producing an all right amount here. Maybe I can wholesale to my cafe. So I started wholesaling everything at arm's length into the family cafe, which now almost exclusively uses our produce or everything that we produce is um, all those SKUs are exclusively sourced from us. Like we don't grow rice, so we import rice. But it, I never had this big objective i guess but the 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 further we go and the more it scales the more my my wife and i are like this is us this is what we're doing in the future you know in, instead of the family that was always looking online at the next business opportunity um to to invest in a new business and turn it around uh we're pretty set now that farming's our thing you know we were talking earlier about the impact of putting glasses on and you know they look weird at first but then they look normal because you yes. adjust a bit and you, it becomes normalized. <clears throat> How has this new venture slash lifestyle changed you, if at all? You know, you go from, as you just said, on the hunt for a good business, operators of small retail businesses or small to medium-sized retail businesses to now kind of stepping into a farmer, regenerative rancher sort of identity. How has that changed your personality, how you see yourself. I mean, obviously it's changed how you see your future, but I'm just curious if it's, if, if you identifying that way has changed anything about how you think or act or anything like that. 100% it has, you know, when I was younger, I would, uh, if, if somebody made a comment about uh, veganism or, or not eating meat, I was the sort of teenager that would uh, you know, thumb my nose at them and go, I'm going to eat two pieces of bacon now because, <laughs> because you're not going to have any. It's just that real, um, 
I guess, arrogant, borderline disrespect for animals. And just before we started farming, I, I was watching a heap of ex- abattoir exposés and all this sort of stuff. And I've always loved animals, even though it didn't manifest in my speech at that time. But in high school, I thought if I was going to study for anything, I wanted to be a vet. But my dad said to me, why do you want to be a vet? I said, I love animals. He said, oh, so you want to hang out with sick animals all day? And so that turned me off straight away. I thought that was quite a pragmatic (laughs) conversation. And the careers teacher was very upset that my dad had pulled me away from uh, an an aspiration of higher education. It's so interesting to me because my careers teacher knew that I was thinking about being a vet in the um, exercise of the class. It wasn't an actual thing I was wanting to pursue. But in the exercise of if you had to, what would you? When I said it's because I love animals, no one suggested be a farmer. Like I think, I think the stigma is maybe changing a little bit, but it's it's not this, uh, it's not this vocation that people turn up to the soccer match and oh my son's going to be a dentist, oh my son's going to be a psychiatrist, oh my son's going to be a, a farmer. Like it just doesn't sort of hold the same people that own land want their children to get off the land to go get good yeah. paying jobs in the city because the drought's too hard, right? But it's it's really changed my attitude around food and animals. Uh, I'm on a massive welfare journey. I've always been a proponent of welfare and everything we do is a higher welfare, but it, my my thinking on what welfare actually is, is uh, evolving rapidly. I've, welfare uh, in what I've context? Never, well, well, welfare is is generally discussed in the tone of kindness and outcomes. So... Uh, somebody would say, oh, you know, uh, my dog has such a good life because I pat it all the time and bite chew toys. You know, that would be an extension of welfare at home uh, when uh, the chew toys that you can buy in town here are almost like um, there's these blueberry toothbrushes that look like they're made out of synthetic um, plastic. Uh, They're not, they're they're, they're edible materials. But the fact is, is that dogs are almost carnivores. Like they're omnivores, but the percentage of meat they eat in their diet is, is, extremely high most of the green matter they would consume would be out of um prey intestinal tracts and i look at that now and i go well yeah your your dog's happy and it gets pats and you bite these true toys but those true toys aren't really the right thing for that dog that dog needs a bone and i know i'm sort of uh splitting hairs here but an extension of that would be uh pigs don't deserve to be in sheds because they need wallows and dirt and and so I guess I'm I'm welfare for me is is getting away from the outcomes because caged uh, environments, factory farms can sometimes have really good outcomes because of how medicated and controlled the environments are. And it's also and then it's trying to shift the paradigm and look at the animal in the context of its expression. So like, how does this animal express its nature? in wild it's a bird that perches so why would we keep it in a cage without perches in it you know it's a bird that's outside so um i'm i'm going down a little bit of and to the point that when i first started farming chickens i was against using lights now a lot of farms use lights that come on a bit before the sunrise to stimulate the bird to get more eggs out of it and the farmers like me that are regenerative and we're holier than they are and we do everything perfect on our micro little scale we were telling all the big boys how to suck eggs because the lights was unkind to the birds because it was tri- tricking them into more eggs. But the further you go down the rabbit hole, you realize that the genetics of the chickens that we use on our farms now are derived from Indonesian jungle fowl, birds that lived and evolved close to the equator that are used to consistently long daylight hours. And then we're putting them in places like South Australia 
or um, you know northern Europe where the daylight hours in winter are a lot shorter. And so my thing, my my journey's gone from stop modifying these birds' environments to um, trick them to now going well. Maybe we should be modifying their environment a little bit to pay homage to their genetic base because that's the natural expression of that bird in its real environment. Does that make sense? Totally. Yeah. So it's just it's just a journey. <laughs> so I guess by my but then by by correlation to that, my attitudes around food and what food can do for your health, human inputs, humans, natural environments and natural expressions. You know, we can observe what we've done for hundreds and thousands of years and derive that some of the things that we're doing now uh, might not be the best for our health outcomes. So that's been a massive rabbit hole for us. Yeah. And then uh, the third thing, probably asking about what's changed in my own outlook would be our environment. My family's never been greenie based. We've, we've never really, we've always thought uh, people spoke too much and, uh, you know, cause we, you, you see Leonardo DiCaprio telling everyone to be green and then flying around in his private jets and you point at the hypocrisy and you go, ha ha. And for most, for a lot of people out there, that's enough to sort of bow out of the conversation and go, this is a waste of time. Um, on a, on a macro scale, I'm not interested in becoming a, a, the environments running around beating my drums but just by farming on our small acreage it's it's the feedback loop is so uh quickly provable about how you can either degrade or improve a life a, a, a piece of the environment in real time mm-hmm. by your management practices your use of animals so you know when people want to demonize cows saying they're bad for the environment well firstly like cows are the environment. So you're going to, you know, I think that's a really strange sort of premise that by proxy of like just being a cow, they're bad for the environment. But there's no doubt that poor management of uh, places like feedlots and factory farms are going to have a negative outcome on the environment, especially the local environment. You're going to have um, import feed, export manure, air quality, all the soil and all the ground is going to become barren in the feedlot. But those animals can actually restore it just as quick as they can degrade it if you manage them properly. And so I've become a real environmental advocate because watching my farm uh, flourish and how productive it's become and how efficient it's become because of that is motivating on on so many levels, an environmental level, a balance sheet level, a a work satisfaction in your environment level. It's, uh, it's, It's motivating. Yeah, I can only imagine. I mean, that's, that's one of the things that's so uh, frustrating about the so-called green or environmental movement. I mean, it's always just the world is going to end, give the government more of your money. And that, that just seems to be the approach rather than taking it on a local level. I mean, I remember when I was, excuse me, like, I don't know, 20 years old and I'd be hanging around with some friends that, you know, um, feigned environmental consciousness or, you know, all else being equal, they would prefer to, well, you know, they didn't they didn't want the, the environment to be destroyed. And let's say they, you know, they believed in some of the catastrophizing that's gone on. And, you know, fair enough. Nobody really knows precisely, you know, where we are and what's what the trajectory of things is. But it always was just deferring to the government to put a tax on that and, you know, make make this group of people do something or make that group of people not do something or prohibit them from doing something rather than being like, no, you you are an ecosystem and you are an impact on the ecosystem. So step one is to manage that, right? To manage how you, the degree to which you impact negatively or destroy or pollute your own environment and, and your own body, because obviously they're intimately connected. So if you can start there, 
then branch out from there. And I, you know, <clears throat> people like yourself, I would say that's what you're doing. You're, you're carving out a little space where you're going to say, I'm not going to try to fix the world right off the bat. I'm going to take a hundred acres, 200 acres, 300 acres. And I'm going to see if I can manage this properly such that I'm able to get what I want out of it without it having a deleterious effect on the environment. And actually opposite to that, to actually regenerate what has been a somewhat depleted or degraded environment. And if everyone had that kind of mentality, I feel like we'd resolve a lot of the issues and the answer wouldn't have to be more communism. Yeah, hundred percent. This is like classic Jordan Peterson, clean your room sort of stuff. Isn't right. It? Yeah. You totally. know, like it, instead of telling the government to uh, um, shut down all the coal power plants. And so Australia just exports its coal over to China instead of using it here locally. Uh, how about you go out, educate yourself and buy your grass fed and finished beef direct from a farmer instead of consuming feedlot beef, because all of a sudden you've gone from personally contributing to the problem to contributing to the solution. So I like to tell when I do my farm tours, I do free farm tours every month. I like to tell people that we buy our future. Like a lot of people say, Jay, why don't more farmers do it like you? I'm like, well, it's expensive the way we do it in terms of uh, management labor. We actually have lower input costs and our leverage of land capital is a lot better, but our labor's right up there and labor requires constant cash flow. So it's a bit more expensive to farm this way. Why don't other farmers do it this way? Because they've got nowhere to sell their produce and get a better return on it. It all just gets sold into commodity markets. But if more and more people started going, we want to buy direct off farmers that farm with integrity and transparency, uh, more farmers will be able to step up and meet the demands of the market. So instead of advocating for uh, more taxation and, and more governance, people just need to vote with their dollar and buy their futures. Yeah, I totally agree with that. Um, and, you know, to the additional irony or absurdity of the situation is oftentimes the people that espouse that view are the ones, you know, and I'm being very stereotypical here, but in Starbucks on their iPhone, you know, being one of those white collar workers so detached from the, the very thing that they're claiming to be a representative of or advocating for, you know, and this speaks to your point earlier where, and I, I grew up the same way, you know, like when I grew up, uh, all of the things that you might aspire to were for, you know, broadly speaking, white collar, be an entrepreneur, be, a, you know, uh, be a psychiatrist, as you said, a doctor, a lawyer, you know, accountant, something in an office, basically. And something uh, boring. Yeah, exactly. Something boring in an office where, you know, you just want to kill yourself most of the time. Uh, and farming was, was seen to be beneath you. Like, it's just, why, why would you ever do that? That's, that's olden times. That's people that have no other options. That's people that are stupid, you know, and it's, and I think it's turning around fairly dramatically right now. And there's probably a number of reasons for that. I mean, one is more and more people are appreciating the idea of sovereignty and they're saying, well, if I want true sovereignty, not just like a limited sovereignty, well, land and, and being able to, uh, sustain yourself on the land is, is certainly a huge component of that. So I think it's attractive for that reason. But I also think the kind of the conceit or deceit of the modern progressive vision. And, I, you know, a lot of these words are, are highly politicized. So I, I'm sure many people are kind of interpreting them differently. But I just mean like that progress is those white collar jobs that, that we were just alluding to. I think people are starting to have a different perspective on that. Be like, you know, progress can just as easily be 
you know, going back to the land as it were, but doing things a little bit more differently, leveraging modern technology so you can build better infrastructure so that you can interface with that ecosystem and manage it better and get more, get more from it and have it uh, enrich itself over time or, you know, be, become more enriched over time. And I think that uh, idea is just becoming, you know, more and more attractive to more and more people, especially Bitcoiners. Um, and before we, we move on to some of those uh, other issues, because of course I got to ask you what your, when Bitcoin came on the scene, but how has, I guess, interfacing with nature to such a intimate degree, how has that influenced well, I mean, I think you you said that you you grew up in a a family of faith, and faith is something you know very important to you. Has that had any influence? Just seeing those patterns that you referenced before, you know, seeing how how uh, how one little change can affect another change in the ecosystem, and how the different feedback loops work, and and how you can either do you know degrade and destruct, or you can be constructive with your management practices. How has interfacing so intimately with you know nature broadly? Uh, impacted your philosophy, your faith, your way of seeing the world, if at all? I guess it's given a lot more perspective and clarity around the fact of the weight that our decisions carry. And that's not just as a farmer, but that's a consumer also. You know, landscapes can so, like I said earlier, can so quickly uh, degrade or improve based on the management and the inputs of them that you know the way we interact with it is as a consumer has tangible outcomes now like I, I remember before i was interested in this space at all you exist in nature as though it's it's um detached from your own experience so like uh, nature's almost a, a space like you're walking around in it and it's it's an area for you to exist in but you don't think about well i never certainly thought about how uh, intertwined our existences were because just like cows are nature you know we are nature too and and being able to be on the farm and make little just little changes like how long the cows are in that paddock how many trees you plant uh, what you build the bridge out of uh, how often you drive on the road you know your chicken management and seeing knock-on effects that last years on years based on those little decisions it's uh it it adds it adds gravity i think to the way that you you become more purposeful with your so like i've i've never cared too much and this is going to be sacrilege but a few years ago i got a few letters in the morning for putting the wrong rubbish in the wrong bin because i just <laughs> never cared too much i'm like yeah i put a i put a recycling bottle in the trash bin like sue me i got a few letters <laughs> and they said do it again we won't pick up your bins for two months uh but now uh even though i can't tie that you know the the waste going to the tip i can't tie that directly to a, a function or experience on the farm i'm very conscientious of the way i handle those little um, externalized outputs in my life now because I know what sort of knock-on effect it can have out there and all those little one percents add up over the life of you know 80 90 years and and if everyone did that there'd be a large accumulative massive outcome wouldn't there yeah totally it must also just expand your world in a sense because again the, the stereotypical like city dweller so-called modern person you know, you have the cityscape and you have transportation and you have online and media, but being 
you you mentioned earlier like the the feedback loop or cycle is so so quick right you're constantly getting feedback and you're constantly able to see what happens when you change a certain input and it must be just so fascinating it's like just again mind expansion is the word that comes to mind because you're you're witnessing and observing and increasingly understanding kind of a whole new world right you're just you're seeing all the different yep. ways that these animals and systems and plants work together how much they're reliant on you know cosmic forces of weather and stuff like that and just how it 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 all gets shaped and then how you can be you know a middleman or an intermediary somewhere there and just nudging things in this direction nudging things in that direction and seeing how things rebalance and whether or not that's what you're looking for and whether or not that's what the land or nature is is willing to give up let's say it must be fascinating it's really fascinating and watching species of uh, plants and animals come back to the farm that we had never seen in the first sort of 15 years of us living there. Just all these little things, you know, blow your mind. And I guess a good analogy would, in terms of the relationship with the environment and the ecosystem, it'd be like going from the passenger of a car to the driver of a car. Like, you know, you as, as a consumer or, you know, a, a civilian in the city, you see the birds there uh in around town and the birds that are there are just the birds that are there and you take it for granted but if you become a driver and you start putting a bit of feed out in your backyard and, and you you modify the environment and you can attract more species of birds and all of a sudden you realize like we're we're not passengers we're participating mm. you know we are the environment and and that's it, it's humbling and it's motivating because it, it's sort of there's this motivation aspect of it that we've got all the um, opportunity to improve everything and we can we've got the tools we know how to do it it's just a matter of fact is if we want to do it but then on the other hand parallel to that there's now this duty of care like you can't unknow this stuff so you have to go and live it mm -hmm. is there a notion i mean I, I, this is probably kind of a silly question but is there a notion of like perfect harmony because you know you're here you're observing things you notice when animals come back, you notice how things change. Have you seen the documentary, um, The Biggest Little Farm? I think that's that's what it's called. So, you know, basically uh -huh. they started with barren land and, you know, they were going to monocrop originally, or I think, you know, they wanted to do something regen, but then they they got uh, advice from an old hand in, in, in that world and they ended up just, you know, adding tons of different plants and fruit trees and animals of all different kinds. And when you know, the uh, animal invaders or, you know, like came in and ate half their crop or killed some of their animals. They just, they found a way to accept a certain amount of, you know, the chaos of nature while also being able to build, you know, a thriving, diverse ecosystem. And, you know, anytime you, you have, um, you have a system and you're noticing that your inputs into it can harmonize it better can bring more balance to it and can have it not only be more in balance but even more productive with more balance does it not conjure up notions of like well how harmonious could this system be like what is the the maximal maximum harm like balance of harmony and production that that is possible here and you know there, there's broader ecosystem constraints i suppose like you know australia versus northern europe versus whatever but does it conjure up those is that what you strive for when you're attempting to continue to hone or perfect your craft here? Well, by proxy of just being involved in regenerative agriculture, you know, we deliberately don't call ourselves sustainable agriculture because why would you want to sustain the status quo? Quote, like how mundane can you be? 
It's about improving and regenerating and reviving, restoring. And, you know, what a great film, Biggest Little Farm. It's one of the, no, if we so don't good. watch much TV, there's my TV behind me with a picture hung over it so the boys don't <laughs> ask for it. But we, we watch it very sparingly. Nice. That's one of the films that we like our children to watch because it's, you know, it's wholesome and it's um, it's it's visually engaging and it's motivating and there's fuller lessons. Uh, you know, they took, it took them about seven years, didn't it, to sort of stop having plague uh, plagues on their farm that would just wipe out crops and, and, and for everything to harmonize and balance out and you know it's definitely something that we haven't had plague events but I think because you know they got into um uh, cropping like fruit production and stuff and vegetable yeah. and fruits harder than animals let me tell you moving a few cows around the paddock is an absolute piece of cake compared to running a small market garden because these things they drink themselves, they eat themselves, they've got their own legs to go where they need to go compared to carrots and kale. Absolute uh, beautiful how elegant cattle farming is. The thing that I think about uh, quite a bit actually is that no one alive today has ever met somebody who's ever met somebody that's ever seen a landscape in full, full bolt natural status being highly productive and not degraded by human intervention like you can you can research um you go all the way back to the romans and the romans were cutting down uh absolute masses of forests all around their cities so that rival armies couldn't sneak up on them and that ended up having ecosystem collapse and because all the forests were gone, and then a few a few areas, a few notable areas turned into lagoons because the ecosystem had collapsed, and now they basically formed into stagnant riparian areas, which caused an explosion of mosquito population, which started wiping out all the cities with malaria. You know that was thousands of years ago. Like we have, you read you read about uh, you know the closest examples of of pristine balanced ecosystems that we'd have would be either um, settled Australia or America, you know, two and 300 years ago. You read the books uh, of the settlers who came in these places, you know, they, they talk about the explorers that go through the Midwest of America and on horseback and the grass is so tall, they can tie knots in the grass over the back of the horse while they're sitting in the saddle. They can just grab the grass and like to, and they've got mobs of millions of buffalo and wildebeest coming through, and these landscapes are easily supported and building fertility. I think the Midwest in America had something like thirty foot deep in topsoil, and they're down yeah. to two foot now because it's all been mined out of the place. So no one alive has ever met anyone who's met someone that understands what these ecosystems are even meant to look like. The best clues we have are in old books and maybe a few paintings. Like I love looking at old. Uh, explorer paintings of Australia because you can pick a hill like there's a hill near us called Big Ben and you can find when people were here a couple of years ago and they painted Big Ben they didn't have cameras and then you go and look at it today and you stand in front of it and they're not the same they're, they're, they're so back when the indigenous peoples were looking after it and we didn't have um, fire trucks so if a fire started that was just a natural expression of that landscape and it wiped everything out you'd have these big mountains with um, trees just spotted over it, these big, uh, fully expressed three, 400-year gum trees that just uh, were like a mosaic, just scattered out, out over the hill. Now, because fire bad, we put every fire out with a, uh, with a fire truck because they're a liability. 
you can't see a blade of grass on these hills. They're completely choked out, dense bush with young trees. None of them look older than 20 years old because they've all suffocated each other and can't grow. Like, I just don't think we can even, that's sort of a bit of a tangent. So I know it's not really what you asked, but I don't think we can even wrap our head around what these landscapes uh, potential expression is. And, you know, that you, you could chalk that up to be some sort of sob story, but I think it's, it's incredibly motivating because look at how productive I can be. The last time I spoke to my bank trying to get some money out of them, they wanted my financials. So I gave them the financials out of the farm. This was my 22 figures, 22 financial year. And there's no industry to benchmark me against because there's no industry that they have data on that's mixed enterprise, stacked enterprise like mine. So the closest thing they benchmarked me on was beef production because all my neighbors are just beef farmers and my biggest uh, income myself is beef. And out of my 100 acre hobby farm, I was doing 26 times more dollars per meter squared than the industry average around my area. You know, and, and to be that productive while using no synthetic inputs and no poisons, no fertilizer, and having masses of grass compared to everyone around me, it's so motivating already having those results and then thinking we haven't even scratched the sides of the potential production of our landscapes. We don't even know how to phrase what that could potentially look like. Yeah. Well, that's one of the things I was going to ask you, you know, we talk about these uh, untouched landscapes, let's say like 300 years ago, Midwest US or something like that. And, you know, you, as you say, the topsoil has come down a lot and the bison population is, has been decimated and all that stuff, but does it not? I mean, I got to think that one of the exciting things now is that you can take, you know, a large amount of knowledge about how to re rebalance or re-establish harmony in these ecosystems such that over time they're building rather than degrading but you can also you also have modern technology to assist you in that so you know and i to my mind the thing that would be exciting about that is you may be and we as a species or whatever let's say might be able to establish a type of uh, Better is probably the wrong word, but you know, like a better harmony than has ever existed, right? Because even in that, now we're kind of comparing apples to oranges because in that untouched, in some of those untouched landscapes, nobody was relying on them for sustenance, you know, and we have to be. So we have to impact our, our ecosystems for that reason. But is it not exciting to think like, wow, like with all that we know and the technology we have and will continue, you know, most likely to continue to have, Will we be able to do more with this land than has ever been done with it? You know, are we not able to, you know, like do something completely novel with it, for, you know, for on the upside, on the good side? And how exciting well, is that? Absolutely. And, and that's why for me, the future is not bleak. There's not this doomsday outcome. The, the future is full of uh, possibilities. You know, if, if a cow eats the grass at the right time, it, it improves the landscape. It sequesters carbon. It nutrient cycles that grass. So it takes this grass that would normally stand there and oxidize, turns it into manure, which gets eaten by the soil and, and, and on you go. When you've got these big migratory herds uh, in the wild, these cycles might've been annual. You know, the animals might've come through and eaten that grass and done a lot of good and then come back a year later when they're bouncing, you know, migrating back the other direction. There, what we know about the grasses and the landscape function now is in spring when that grass is growing really fast, it's got itself to a level. Um, it's it's repaired itself and recovered and expressed itself to a level where it might be ready for grazing again in 10 or 15 days without 
negatively uh, impacting and on the flip side, actually positively impacting the ecosystem. But there's certain other seasons where it does need four or five months in different landscapes. So we, we've got these tools now. If you've got an open mind and you do the research. So I guess to your point, we, we can now with our management leverage systems that would take thousands of years, millennia to build that fertility. And, and we can manipulate that and work those systems when, within the natural context and accelerate it extremely aggressively. So instead of grazing that grass once a year, we can graze it eight times a year and get eight times the amount of manure on the ground. Uh, but you, you've, you've got to have the right decision-making ma matrix. It's important to, you know, in, in farming, you don't want to stick to systems. Like you need systems in, in terms of uh, what, what time do you start your shift? When do you let the chickens out of the sheds in the morning? These sorts of things. But if you say things like, uh, we move our cattle to a new paddock um, every single day, that's a rigid operating system. But the it's not moving them to the new day. That's actually the trick. It's how long you let that paddock recover before you come back and graze it. And that can't be systemized because the weather changes, the amount of animals you're feeding changes, the rain changes, all these all these, your soil gets more fertile or less fertile over time, depending on how you're managing it. So it's about, um, it's, it's really about forming that relationship with the environment you're owning and, and having the decision-making matrix to be able to think about these, all these different moving parts. And for us on our farm, that's why it was so important to do a holistic management course. There's, I don't know if you've seen Alan Savory. He did a very famous TED talk a few years ago and talked about how he killed all the elephants because he figured out elephants were bad for the environment. And now it's his you know, greatest regret because he realized it's not the cow, it's the how. It wasn't the elephants degrading the environment, it was the fences trapping the elephants' movements. So he's written a, a, a fantastic blueprint for decision-making um, context and actually you know, looking at all the different moving parts and how to apply that onto your farm without it being a rigid system because the rigid systems fail. So the, the future's bright they're, they're, we, we can absolutely leverage natural landscape function to accelerate its repairing mm -hmm. um going back to the bank meeting i'm assuming with 26 times uh revenue per square meter is that what you said at that stage it was um probably be closer to 40 now so the bank gave you some money i'm guessing based off those figures yep um my question is, presumably that's a fairly, what you're doing and what others have done ought to be generating a fairly strong incentive or at least piquing the curiosity of other farmers because, you know, and this will be different in, in depending on where you are. But part of the reason we alluded to earlier why um, farming was such a uninteresting career path when you and I were growing up. And part of that, although I'm, I'm more cognizant of it in later years, so perhaps not too much a part of it. But is the the plight of farmers like all, you you've heard many sob stories or you know you've you've heard how difficult it is to be a farmer whether it's you know the the rising cost of inputs whether it be fertilizer or you know energy inputs and uh, you've heard about shady practices with uh, you know the Monsantos of the world uh, you know you've the debt that farmers have to take on in order to keep things going and how inflation is is they're having is making everything harder so presumably people that are coming along and doing what you're doing and saying well i've figured out a way to be you know 
way more profitable and good for the environment and, you know, less stress, less inputs, less subject to the, the machinations of macroeconomics in terms of the cost of inputs. So is that not generating, you know, a lot of interest in farmers that previously were doing it, you know, a different way, monocrop, big feedlot, that kind of stuff. And I, I mean, I think it has to be mentioned as well. We'll, we'll break into this in a little bit because it's super interesting what you're doing, but the dynamics have changed as well. Like 50 years ago, you produce something, you sell to uh, a wholesaler and they or a distributor and they they sell it, right? Now with the internet and with social media, you can sell direct to consumer. And so you're able to retain a lot of the profit that otherwise or previously you would have had to have, to have given up. So all of these things are changing the dynamic uh, or the, the opportunities that are available to farmers. So are they not starting to look over your fence and be like, I want some of that. I don't, I don't want to be suffering it over in the way I've been doing it. It's really mixed. You know, I get a lot of young people that want to start farming, reaching out, wanting information, have a Zoom call, which I'm always happy to do. Uh, a lot of the old timers, um, although they're not wanting to roll it out because they've sort of, um, you know, they've done their farming journey, but a lot of the older boys who might be in their 70s and 80s that I meet at different events that I speak at and things are incredibly uh, complimentary and interested and say things like, I wish I thought of this sooner. But the the my peers, the farmers who are out there inheriting broad acre farms in their 30s and 40s and, and working, well, not even inheritance, take that out of it, but are working and stewarding these uh, big farms like America has, guys around my age, I, I generally get a bit more flack off them because to, to them, it's all sensationalized um it, it, it's all hobby it would never work at scale it's all a bit too romantic it's not the real image of what farming is so it's it's a really uh mixed response and i find it really interesting that the really young and the and the old people both love it but it's it's that uh it's the working group like the group that's actually i guess a little bit more in control of what we're actually doing that most of them tend to see it as a little bit of a joke i guess i i do think the way that we're doing things is is necessary and i think that there's a lot more opportunity for young people to get into a, a stacked enterprise direct to consumer farm com compared to trying to get into a traditional farming experience but i would i would be remiss if i didn't sort of put some sort of caveat on that and say you know no business is free and no business is easy but people since i've started only four years ago i've watched a dozen local farms trying to do what we do, young people on lease land or hobby blocks, start and finish. Um, start online, telling everyone how they're going to fix the world, selling eggs, selling pork, whatever it might be. And then within two or three years, they've already given up because they didn't meet their expectation and it was uh, too difficult for them. And I think one of the things where new farmers go wrong coming into it is that they think they can do it with no capital behind them. You know, whether you're, whether you're buying or starting a bike shop, a record shop, a restaurant, an investment portfolio, a farm business, you know, you, you don't get value for nothing. You know, they're called Ponzi schemes. You've, you've got to have something, you've got to buy your livestock, you've got to market, you've, you've got to have infrastructure to store your produce and to fence your animals in. So, you know, I think I'm a little bit of an, an anomaly uh, based on, on my trajection, trajection in the last four years with how quick we've scaled from a you know, kid who knew nothing about farming to, um, you know, will easily crack a million dollars revenue uh, this year. Uh, but I've invested 
somewhere between four and five hundred thousand dollars in the farming business as well to to purchase the the animals and the infrastructure like i had to go and spend and you know over half of that money that i just said i've invested is to purchase my butchery and renovate it and stock it with equipment because there's no access to market without it um so i think i wouldn't want to dissuade anyone from doing it but you've got to be realistic that if you if you don't have the equity if you don't have the capital to snowball the the farm as soon as you get into it you've got to be willing to trade off that equity with your labor with your unpaid sweat equity and that's going to make scaling longer isn't it it might take you 10 years to get to well, what you could do in four years with half a million dollars might take you 10 years if you've only got 100 grand in the bank too because you'll have to naturally breed your animals up instead of buying them in all these sorts of things and i think a lot of people see small scale stacked enterprise low-cost infrastructure portable infrastructure all these things and they think they can do it on the smell of an oily rag uh but then they never hit that scale they need to actually be able to afford to put a farm hand on so they're not working 80 hours a week doing it all themselves and never seeing their family mm -hmm. i've never heard that expression before smell of an oily rag i like it um what must be what would you, yeah i'm sure it is what would you say to because you know i suspect a lot of people listening to this you know, perhaps including myself at some point, but, you know, as we were saying, a lot, a lot more people are being, um, are finding this way of life, or at least this type of enterprise, very compelling. You know, what would you say to people that are looking to start out? Obviously you just said, you know, if you want to fast track things, you can, if you have capital, then you can deploy it and fast track things that way. But for people that maybe have less than capital than that, and can't get access to it or, you know, want to hold on to their Bitcoin more tightly or whatever the case may be. If someone's just trying to get something started on a small scale, you know, is there anything that pops out that you would, um, you you would advise them to make their 100%. journey easier and, and more successful and not be ones like the, the, the 10 you mentioned? Well, you've got to, you've got to identify what you actually want first. Like, are you trying to start a viable full-time business or are you just trying to homestead to build up some food security for your family because they're they're different scenarios and, and the way you're going to attack them is differently but if you're just wanting to have enough of your family and maybe sell some surplus to community friends and family you know peached canned peaches for sats on twitter every now and then or something like that um, you need less land than you think okay, I, I laugh about my 100 acres being a hobby farm but if you're a family of four or five and you can scratch together two or three acres, you could absolutely, uh, it depends on climate, you know, there's so many variables, but I'm just going to yeah. go out there and say that you could absolutely be uh, the, the majority, you, you, you could be food secure with most of your foods. Like obviously, if you're going to be wanting to eat mangoes and rice, you're going to be importing these commodities from appropriate climates, go to the shopping center to get them. But on a few acres for the average family, you could raise a body of beef every year. You could have half a dozen pigs. You could have a hundred chickens, like what it, for, for meat and eggs and do all these things. And I would just um, encourage people that you can't Google experience like the uh, famous Joel Salatin says, and just to get out there in the trenches and do it. Now, this doesn't mean uh, being irresponsible and neglecting your animals. There's, there's, a, there's a level of duty of care and responsibility that comes with accepting livestock onto your farm. But I, I know and see so many people that have read all the books, watched all the YouTube channels, gone to all the courses, and they're still planning three, four years later, they're still planning. They've got the land, they're on the land and they're just, uh, they've, they've bound themselves up. They're, they're high level of conscientiousness 
has just killed any potential productivity that they might've been able to excrete. So I would just encourage people to actually get started. You don't have to do it all at once. Just get 20 chickens. If, you, if you've got a suburban, I live on an 800 meter block. So it's like a two and a half thousand foot city block. And I've got friends in, in town with the same size blocks and they raise all their meat birds every year in their backyards. They're broilers doing daily moves on pasture. You know, like there's so much potential on small um, landscapes. So even if you're living in a high rise complex, put some pots outside and start growing some tomatoes and just start getting those hands-on experiences uh, as, as quick as possible because they, they gain momentum. And you, as you talk to people about them, it'll it'll build opportunities. Right. Um, you mentioned you had to purchase a butchery. So there was an existing butcher and, and you purchased it or you had to start one up and, and staff it or... So when you when you want to sell direct to market in Australia, you have to send your animals to a processing plant, which we call an abattoir. That's where the animal gets uh, killed, slaughtered, and then it gets delivered to a local butcher. So your local mar and par that you'll go to to buy your snags and scotch steak for dinner, T-bone steak, and they'll cut it up for you, put it in your packets and charge you a price for doing that. And I was using a great local butcher who did a fantastic job for me, but his capacity was extremely small. And so I started nosing around at multiple different butchers, trying to see if I could run, you know, animals through two or three different local processes, just became a nightmare because they're all busy running their own shop. They've all got different equipment. So all the meat would be packed and labeled differently. I'd have no consistency in my product, which was important to me. Coming from a retail background, I knew everything needed to be consistent. Uh, Timelines were all over the place. Costings were all over the place. Some of them were a bit hot-headed and hard to deal with. So I just thought my business is, I was so micro at that level and I was already hit, hitting these bottlenecks and I thought I just need to process myself. So I purchased a freehold, a, a building of a butchery business that had recently been closed. It had been in town for over 70 years and the, the family that had it, the Peters family, had sold the business. The person that bought the business um, went bankrupt and so they liquidated all the machinery and then they sold the freehold. And I'm the one that bought the freehold. The timing worked really well for us. And then we renovated it because we had to get it back up to code because it was a bit old and tired, put all new equipment in it and started processing our own animals. And in the beginning, I had a butcher working two days a week. This is only two years ago. I had a butcher working two days a week in the butchery and then two days a week in my bike shop building bikes and then a day a week on the farm driving the tractor around slashing all the neighbor's <laughs> weeds and doing all sorts of different chores and he loved it he thought it was great to have all these different experiences and now we've got two full-time butchers and a part-time packer doing our custom processing and we also custom process for about 15 other local farmers so other farmers that have also identified the challenge in getting uh into the market with their produce can use us and because we don't run a traditional front of house retail space we're not getting distracted by the phone ringing and the door buzzing we're just out the back processing so we're able to make sure that everything's very consistent and timely and uh packaged nice and neat so that's been running for about two years now there's no way we could do our business without it but the the next week link is the abattoir because i've gone from four local abattoirs servicing our needs to one in two years for a range of for a range of reasons it's not a they're, they're not singling me out they've stopped doing any custom pro custom slaughtering uh purely just because the economics of it are just a pain in their backside dealing with all these little micro producers that are always late and send animals that are too big or too small they just don't want to deal with it anymore so we need an abattoir in our supply chain uh that we can uh control just to have that 
sovereignty over our own business because if this abattoir turns me off, you know, we're standing in standing still. Yeah. But I guess I don't know. Did you see what we've done with our retail space online with the butchery? Yeah. Uh, is it, I I saw your TikTok that had you know yes. hundreds of thousands yeah. of views. I, well, I want to hit on that in a second, but before we do, um, have you you know gotten involved in in the butchering and that kind of stuff up to this point? Is that something that you, if not, you know, will you? No, look, I just I I bring in the labor for that in my bike shop. I can't repair bikes in my cafe. I can't make coffees. I'm not. I know a lot of business owners like having their fingers on the pulse and be able to do everything. But to me, that really slows progress and turns you into a micromanager, and and it makes you uh, probably more open to hiring people that aren't as suitable for the job because you can feel their shortfalls. You know, I, one of my rules is to hire people better than me for the task that they're being given. Why would I want to hire people worse than me? I may as well do it myself. It just makes no sense. So I deliberately shy away from those jobs. And, and it also makes you treat your staff differently to a degree. Like I've got great workplace culture across my businesses, but if you know that you can't step in and do that man's job or that woman's job for them, uh, there's there's a certain level of management that needs to come along with that uh, for the, for the uh, yin and the yang of the business to keep progressing. So I'll go in there and I'll cry back and I'll label bags and I'll uh, I'll slice steaks in a pinch if I need to. But in terms of the proper technical butchering, I'm starting to figure out where certain things come from a bit better. I'm not into these sorts of details. I'm big picture. You know, a lot, a lot of people just obsess about all these little details. And as long as the meat in the packet is good quality, I'm quite happy to just know as little as possible. Yeah. So you might think this is a silly question. Um, and in a sense that, you know, it perhaps is, but it's still something I think about. And, uh, you know, for context, the question I'm going to ask you is, you know, you said earlier that you're an animal lover and you used to be kind of, uh, dismissive of like, you know, the, the, the stereotypical vegans refrain or concern or argument or whatever. Um, uh, but you know, now part of your business is yes, absolutely raising animals in the best possible environments and ensuring that they have a, a good life and that kind of stuff. And part of that is harvesting or killing animals. And, you know, uh, it's something that I've had to think a lot about as, you know, I eat a ton of meat because I think it's the best sustenance for me. And, um, you know, I won't go too deeply into, you know, my own philosophy on it, but it has, if nothing else, um, and this, again, this may sound somewhat funny, but like if I'm going to uh, sacrifice an animal's life for my own sustenance, it has impressed upon me a certain responsibility to make as best use of that sustenance that they've given me as I possibly can, you know, for lack of a better term, be the best that I can be or, or, or lead a good life, some, you know, something like that. Make it, make that sacrifice as meaningful as I possibly can. Um, and I'm just wondering, you know, now that you're up close and personal with, um, this, uh, these activities, this, the, you're part of this process. Uh, how has that influenced, if at all, your, you know, your mentality or your perspective on that stuff? Yeah, ab absolutely. To to the same extent, I've taken my own health more seriously. We we work extremely hard to use the whole animal nose to tail. We want as we want as smaller amount of the animal being thrown out as possible which is also better financially for us but not all of it it's a great roi struggling through how to figure out how to use these bits but we want to um pay respect to the you know 
the the yield that these animals have given us they've worked their whole lives and now we've taken their protein that we need for our own sustenance and it is about honoring that 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 um sacrifice to use the word that you used um i i like i can't eat factory farmed meat so if we go out to a restaurant and it's it's caged pork and feedlot beef on the menu i'll eat I'll get the vegetarian option and I'm basically carnivore. Like I don't eat vegetables, but I would rather eat vegetables than eat a pig that's been confined into a concrete box its whole life and, and just been abused. Now, part of the reason why I do what I do is not only so my family can have access to what we call healing food, but great quality food that makes us feel great, but it's so that we can also eat it with a clean conscience knowing that that animal hasn't been violated, like it hasn't been put in a jail cell its whole life. Uh, and I know that's hard for the, the the vegan population to wrap their head around. The, the reality is for me, being on one end of the spectrum and most vegans being on the other end, is if we actually sat down and had a roundtable discussion, I think that we would have 95% of things in common. Uh, we, we would We would agree that the, the, the way we raise a lot of our animals stinks, the way we process a lot of our animals stinks, the environmental outcome of the way we raise our animals is no good. Like we'd, we'd, we'd agree on all these things. I'm like, we're partners in this. But the one thing we would disagree is um, on the, the final point morality of being able to consume these animals or not, whether, whether it's something um, appropriate or not. But we actually, and this is what you see across um society as a whole isn't it you see you see tribalism and sides pitched against each other left versus right all this sort of stuff when the reality is is that we all want the same things we all want to be healthy we all want to be happy we want our family protected we want good quality food like very few outliers on these main things it's just our thinking process as to how we get there differs yeah i totally agree with that um last point on that but you know Again, as you said, like the veg the vegans would come back and say, "Yeah, it's great that you're giving them a better life, but you're still taking the life at some point in the process." Um, and you know, I, that's that point is probably not reconcilable. You, either you think that you're, uh, you know, you have a, a kind of right or privilege to do that, or you don't. Does does your faith impact your perspective on you know so-called dominion over? animals to do that or did you make up your mind on on that absence you know having to invoke uh maybe that's sort of the wrong framing but i think you know what i'm getting at you know you're yeah well you're I, you know being raised in a christian household we believe that we were put here to steward the earth which isn't something that we've uh i, I don't think it's something that we can claim we're doing fantastically well at the animal <laughs> um so you know trying our best to actually live that joel salatin who i keep referencing he's he's the farm guru for me he wrote a book called the marvelous pigness of pigs and it's basically an open letter to the church going all you guys think you're christians yet you sit by while we abuse his creation and destroy his environment in the process and you happily eat it because it's cheaper off the shelf you know yeah. it, it's hypocrisy um, so like my decision to source uh, better quality food wasn't a faith-based decision. It was just a decision going, look at that video of that pig's disgusting environment and the way it's suffering. I don't want to be part of it. Mm -hmm. it, it. It was, you know, it was, it was a visual uh, game changer, but I, I, you know, for, for me, this, this goes back to human welfare. You know, we're talking about animal welfare and you have to observe the species in the context of its natural environment 
Well, if we step back over time and look at the species of humans in context to our natural environment, we ate meat almost everywhere. And in some places we only eat meat. And of course, there's some places on, with very heavy vegetarian diets, but it's just not the norm. Exceptions, mm -hmm. you know, you've got, you've got ideals, norms, and exceptions. And why would we make our own personal decisions based on um, exceptions that are there because of uh, small amounts of culture or smaller amounts of geographical loca location? You know, I think the norm is that we've eaten we've eaten meat, but the norm is probably that we've eaten really good, high quality meat from wild game and, and animals that haven't had antibiotics. Like we've only had antibiotics in animal agriculture since the forties. Mm -hmm. You know, so you know we're just. Uh, I, I also think there's a fantastic book called Deep Nutrition by Dr. I think she's American, Dr. Catherine Shanahan. And it talks about epigenetics. I don't know if you've come across epigenetics. Yep. Uh, and, and for me, when we, again, basically sort of how, how, the same boat. How, how environment allows for the expression of certain, you know, latent genetic attributes. Basically. Yeah. So your environment and your, and your diet, which is a, you know, part of your environment can yep. turn, basically turn off or turn on certain parts of your uh, genetic information, but that's heritable. So the, the, the part where your health is at, at the time of your breeding, when you breed with your partner is sort of the starting block for your progeny. So if, if you want to be a, if you want to martyr your personal health in the name of animal um, care, uh, that's, we could argue whether that's noble in its own right, but if you're doing that prior to breeding and you're handing down that starting block for your future uh, progeny, I would say that's really poor welfare on a holistic sense. Mm -hmm. You know, it's, it, you're, you're predisposing your child to a, a range of en enormous challenges throughout its life. And, and none of this is airy fairy stuff. You know, you can pick up a book and educate yourself. So I think like I've I've got I've got family members that are vegans and they're raising some are raising children, infant children vegan, and the other ones are not. You know, it's it's a real it's a real cognitive dissonance to sort of find yourself in as a as a principled vegan. Um, and I don't want to become the vegan basher. Like I said, I've got more in common with them than I don't. But it's just you know there's, there's conversations to be have around this and humans being living mammals in our environment. So part of the environment, we have our own welfare. And I don't believe that, um, you know, if, if not for yourself, what about for the kids? You know, like there's, there might be just a, a better time and place to be living these um, virtues. Yeah, I agree with you. And, you know, sure, we can skip on the, the vegan bashing, but what we can probably do is is bash on the standard American so-called diet, you know, um, and it's amazing that the the acronym is sad, but you know, <laughs> nothing nothing is a better indictment of how uh, the sustenance so-called that those people are consuming is being produced than what its outcome is in in the the form and the the health status of the people that consume food produced in that way, and you know, drawing broad brushstrokes here again, but I, I think most people wouldn't find too much argument with that doesn't result in what nearly anybody would deem to be a healthy, strong, longevity oriented physique or health status when you eat food that's been produced in that way. So, I mean, that alone, if we're just judging the landscape and saying, well, what should we eat and how should the food that we eat be produced? You look at someone who's eating you know, the monocrop, the high fructose corn syrup, the, you know, the factory farmed, all this kind of stuff. And then you look at someone who's eating a diet 
you know, of the manner that the food that you produce. And it's evident which one is, I mean, it's extremely evident which one is um, most appropriate for, for, for a thriving human being, let's say. Yeah, absolutely. And those, those supermarket diets where everything's, you know, wheat and high fructose corn syrup, you know, not only does it have horrible effects for human health on a generational level, but it's also disgusting for the environment. If you, if you look right, at exactly, these, yeah. um, heavily medicated monoculture environments, the interesting thing is, and this is where I think it all starts to get into the weeds, and this is where long-form discussion is really helpful around these, but cropping, uh, large-scale cropping and animal grazing can both cause desertification. They can both destroy landscapes. But in, in with the current tools that we have in front of us, only one can rapidly restore the landscape and that's the ruminant grazing if, if managed properly. Um, so I don't know, the, 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 for the cropping areas around me, when you drive through them, yeah, they look pretty sometimes of the year because you've got all these yellow flowers, but you come back a few months later after they've just finished burning it off to get rid of all the stubble and it sits in the paddock and then they come through and they poison it. They, they put 14 tractor passes over a crop now by the time they prepare the ground, seed it, fertilize it, come through and use herbicides and pesticides to clean up all the pressure on the crop, to, to spray it, to kill it at the end of the season so it all dies uniform and they don't get late season bolting to actually harvest it. 14 times these tractors go over these, film, these fields. You know, just the, um, the, input, the input alone is incredible. It almost makes me think, as you're saying that, that um, managing it with ruminant animals properly, doing the regenerative approach is almost inevitable because the land will give up the ghost, you know, in, in the way that it's currently being used. And you'll have to introduce this style of farming in order to rehabilitate it at some point. Um, I know we're, we're coming up on time, so I just got two more things for you. But uh, one is, uh, I think you had, you know, two or three... Two or three hundred thousand views on a TikTok slash Twitter video you you put out recently, and this was the retail experience for the farming that you've been doing, and it was super cool. Basically, for anyone that hasn't seen it, you know, you go you 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 only have members, and so each member gets a pin code to this retail location. Let's just say it's on a normal like retail road, and uh, you go in, and there's all sorts of stuff, you know, beef, pork, eggs tons of stuff. It looks amazing. And you just fill up your cart and then you have an app on your phone, express checkout or something like that. You scan the, the barcode on everything that you're taking. There's nobody in the store. There's a couple of cameras up in the ceilings. You, so you're, you're relying on the members to be honest in what they have in their cart. They scan everything. They pay that way. They walk out the door. There's no uh, personnel whatsoever. And then at, at the end of the video, you say that you've been doing this for two years, I think you said, and uh, you've never had a, you know, you've never had a loss, basically. So nobody's ever screwed you, which is amazing. Um, but I think, you know, and you, you, you vet, uh, as you said, you vet the members, they come and do a farm tour. So there, there, there is a relationship there. But I think the industry you're in and what I'm beginning to notice or have been noticing for a while in Bitcoin that I think our future and the value for value and what you're doing is obviously not the same. And, you know, there's no additional marginal cost to distributing information, let's say. But just this notion of people being more honorable, people being more honest and being willing to 
uh, pay for for what they're receiving and not not needing to be policed. You know, I think that's um, an attribute of these these two uh, industries, communities, whatever you want to call them, that I suspect and hope we will see proliferate far more so that there can be more of this style of doing business rather than, you know, starting from a, a premise of extreme distrust and, you know, and, and the kind of how that pollutes a relationship between either individuals or, you know, customer and, and entrepreneur or, or, or shop owner or whatever. So yeah, tell me, tell me if I missed anything and what that retail experience has been like and how you came up with it and all that stuff. No, that was a great recap. Look, I, I, I didn't want to open a traditional storefront because, you know, one of the things that lets us be so efficient and disciplined out the back with our uh, protein processing is that we don't have a door buzzer going off and we have to put tools down and go serve people. And with my with my production, it there's just it makes no sense to throw another wage out the front to stand there and scare, scan bags. Like I, I'd, I'd have to be doing a lot more than I am and it'd all have to go through there. And it just wasn't where we were at. So I, I initially decided, you know, we need to have a big meat vending machine and I couldn't find anything suitable. And then I just somehow came up with this i don't know how it popped into my head but basically it's like a 24-hour gym that you can self-service on using your phone as the hardware instead of having like a you know a, a fixed scanning device and the memberships aren't free like they they don't cost anything but i do request that people come along to one of my farm tours which are free i do them monthly they always book out you know within a day or two of hosting them uh listing them uh they don't cost anything financially but I do request three to four hours of your undivided attention on a Sunday, which is not easy to get from people. You know, it's a, it's a, it's a long time to donate to walking around a field and hearing about a guy rant and rave about his cows. And obviously I attract a certain clientele that are interested in food providence and animal welfare and regenerative farming and community building and all these things. But for me, that's been a really great filter to onboard people who are actually serious about wanting to put their money where their mouth is and, and buying their future and then in turn trusting them within the facility. There's a certain level of trust with the facility, but there's also a certain level of big brother, you know, unique code for access, um, high def cameras, recording visual and audio footage, uh, you know, rolling stock takes just to check things. But like, like I said earlier, the, sure, like it's you not said, a free for all. No, you know, there's, there's some disincentives there, but. Yeah, but but for the you know for, for the most part, someone could just walk in and, and grab a big box full and off they go. But for me, it's always been, you know, worse, even if somebody breaks into the place, which I've my other stores, my bike shop, my cafe, they get broken into every couple of years and you sort of get a little bit desensitized to it. Like it's just you don't take it personal after a while. It's just a cost of doing business. But even if somebody walked in and loaded a couple of boxes up with as much meat as they could possibly carry out like what are we talking about 30 40 kilos of meat maybe thousand bucks worth of meat right. you know it's just not the end of the world i saved that in a in a in four days worth of wages so the downside for me when i started was everyone was going you're going to get fleece you're going to get fleece i'm like well maybe but i'll just cut my losses at a few thousand dollars and i'll just reinvent the wheel and we'll have a go again but it's never it's never come to that point yeah, it, I saw it and what everyone thought it was pretty interesting, I gather, because it kind of went viral uh, as far as videos go. As, as far as uh, yeah, wait, the, know, the, view, the video had about um, the video had about a million views between TikTok and Twitter wow. in the first week. And uh, my website crashed. It had over three million landings in a week. 
and uh, oh, you know shit. people click it around and it, it buggered up my website for a little bit there. But we're we're back on now. It was did, awesome. it did it translate much into boost in, in sales? Not not enormously because I don't. Prior to the video going viral, I didn't have a shopping cart on my website because everything I produce is selling out locally. So I haven't really been chasing. You know, it's it's a it's a chicken and egg sort of thing because to once I scale production on the farm, I've got to go and find out a place to move it because it's time sensitive material. I can't just, you know, sit it on a shelf for years. It's got yeah. to get out there and get into people's freezers. But on, on, on the other hand, when demand does boost, production takes time. Like uh, start to finish of breeding a cow and having a finished animal to sell is three years. You know, if to, to turn a pig off, to get a pig wiener in and finish it off and sell it into the market, it's about four months. So there's certain, um, I'm scaling meat chickens, broilers they're called, and uh, pigs pretty quick at the moment. And I've invested a lot into cattle and sheep, but they're just a slower burn. I just can't meet the market as fast. It's just the way it is. Yeah. Um, all right. Last one for you. Uh, the Bitcoin element. When did sure. you, you know, catch the Bitcoin bug, go down the rabbit hole? And well, I mean, we could discuss a lot about any element there, but perhaps most uh, interestingly, or, you know, one of, the, one of the elements of this, which I've discussed with other people, you know, doing the regenerative farming thing before is, is just how, uh, ironically perhaps or surprisingly you know this digital protocol that lives on the internet that you know you never really see touch or smell or anything like that is very much in line with you know the principles of farming and soil and you know uh and work and storing you know the proof of your work storing value um and of course a lot of change in perspective often comes with understanding Bitcoin. And it seems like that perspective is also very conducive to seeing the value in something like regenerative agriculture. So just wondering what, what your rabbit hole story was and, and how, if at all, uh, you've integrated it into what you're doing or it influences your perspective in terms of what you're doing. It changes your idea about the future of what you're doing. Floor is yours. Just tell, tell me sure. uh, your Bitcoin stuff. Well, like I guess most, civilians i've heard about bitcoin i knew that it was a um, online digital currency but I, I i probably years ago googled it and couldn't figure out how to buy it within two or three minutes and just you know chase the next bouncing ball and got on with it then during covid a friend of mine got on an exchange and started basically day trading shit coins so he said, come do this with me. And I like, when I tell this story, I can just hear all the Bitcoiners roll on the rise in the background, but we've all nah, got a every, journey, Everybody right? did it, man. Everybody did it. Yeah. <laughs> so for me, it was a bit of fun because we had uh, we had lockdowns all over the place, you know, Australia being probably the most lockdown place in the world and um, maybe, maybe bar China. And uh, a lot of pressure across my businesses with um, onerous compliance and, and regulation and audits and things. And so I just jumped on uh, one of these exchanges with my friend and we we're just sending each other screenshots of the trades and the pumps and dumps. And for me, I didn't look at it as an investment. I was It was literally gambling for me. I think I threw in a thousand bucks, made some money on some loss. I ended up getting out about even. Um, but along that process, trying to educate myself I realized that not all currencies were equal uh, in these marketplaces. There were some that were just absolute Ponzi schemes and there were others that did profess some sort of uh, value. And I sort of thought, you know, which one's the which one's the real one? Which one's the most legitimate out of all of them? 
but I, I ended up getting bored with the day trading. I sucked out all my cash and uh, I walked away from it. And then a few months later, I had somebody call my butchery and say, I want to, I want to book in a body of beef for processing. And you've been recommended to me to do it. I've, yeah. Sorry. My, my stud here is uh, just seeing somebody out the window. Come here, big boy. And uh, I'll show him. Oh, oh boy. sorry. Sorry for the people just listening, but I've got my standards now as I start bowser oh, on my lap and he's got a massive head. Big, he's gorgeous, fella. man. And he's, he's barking at people outside. Anyway, we had a, we had a uh, mini he, uh, back in the day. I've got a mini here next to me as well, but my sister breeds minis, a business I set up with her, and then I sold her my portion and I imported these standards from Croatia and I, I, I breed and sell standards now. Nice. nice. Anyway, uh, this guy said, I've got a buying club in Melbourne. We raise our own beef on a gistman out of town and we want to get a process to start selling it to our friends and in our community. I said, yeah, great. And then he said, if I send you a list of everyone's orders, can you pack the orders for us? And now this is the absolute worst part of the job for us because it's so uh, laborious and, and farmers always have... Um, things sold and split into packs that are almost completely impossible because they're just mm. clueless as to how many T-bones a, a cow gives you. So I said, yeah, look, I can do it for you. So he sent me his spreadsheet with everyone's orders and there was a column. So it would say, you know, Mark is getting 20 kilo mix box. We're delivering it to him at, at his address or he's picking it up from this address. And then there was a column with our payment. And I'd never seen anything like it in, in you know, 15 years of, of business and being self-employed it was it was um fiat 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 honey <laughs> bitcoin 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 fiat and when i called him and said your order's ready it's on the truck coming down to melbourne i said are you selling some of this meat for bitcoin and it didn't click with me at the time because i wouldn't have described myself as a bitcoiner but um it was a uh, uh, proof of work beef was what he called himself uh which was really and i said are you selling some of this for bitcoin and I thought, what a strange name. And, and he said, yeah, I am. He goes, do you want me to pay you for the processing in Bitcoin too? And I said, oh, look, not this time. Maybe we'll talk about that in the future, but I've got bills and you know stuff I want to get on. And I didn't have a wallet, didn't even know what a wallet was. And that guy, John, it has basically brought me into the Australian Beef Initiative, which we just had Texas Slim at our farm, giving a, uh, we had a big fun weekend, the, the inaugural Australian Beef Initiative Summit with a hundred people there. That was oh, great cool. fun. Cool. But that was my first intro, I guess, into Bitcoin. And then um, John actually came up to one of my farm tours and met me and physically uh, showed me how to get a wallet on my phone with me and sent me some sats and uh, gave me as a gift a uh, a uh, hard wallet. What, what type was it? I've got a couple now, but I, he, he gave me one. And really just sort of mentored me through that process and, and motivated me to keep sort of digging deeper and to look into it. And um, I, I, you know, I'm, I love it now. It's a part of our business. We've just, we're just about to roll out functionality so people at our bike shop and our cafe can buy coffees, meals, bicycle services with sats through an app called VaultPay, which was um, developed by a Aussie guy. Uh, so we got a big window sticker getting printed up. We've got these front facing our, our stores on one of the main streets of town. So we've got these windows that are about three and a half by one and a half meters. And I've got this big Bitcoin accepted here poster about to get put on one of the main streets of Aubrey, the busiest intersection in Aubrey. Uh, we accept it for butchery goods, farm goods. Uh, our website's going to have uh, sats integration within the next week or two, hopefully. So people that are buying our meat boxes or honey or pet treats or hats or whatever. There's, you know, limited, we don't sell our whole catalog on our website, but it's currently expanding events. We've got 
We've got a lot of events coming up over the next 12 months, including a quantum health summit with all these uh, doctors that want to talk about light and cold baths and diet and epigenetics. It's going to be super nutrient dense. That's in November. We want to accept sats for all that sort of stuff because I'm the sort of, I'm not an investor. I'm a businessman. So I don't want to buy my Bitcoin. I want to earn it. Yeah. Uh, I, I, I don't like, in, like when investing is fine, everybody should do a little bit of it. Some people, professional investors, that's great. But for me, investing is acknowledging that somebody else is better, going to give you a better return than what you can do for yourself. And so I'm a little bit arrogant in the sense that like, obviously there's a, there's a million different companies I could invest in and, and I'd probably create a better ROI than what I could do, but I'm also giving up flexibility because I, all my businesses, not only are they generating me income, but they're also contributing to my lifestyle, uh, my, my security, my, my, my access to different markets, different people, different connections. So I'm very bullish on investing in myself and my own ecosystem, my own infrastructure. You know, I bought myself my own portable timber mill. So I don't have to go to the hardware store anymore. I can just go out into the paddock and mill my own timber off trees that have fallen down on my farm. That's the sort of thing that I like, uh, air quote, investing my money into. But with the SATs, I'm, I'm very uh, excited and, and having a great time acquiring and stacking through sales and, and earning my turn. Yeah, I couldn't agree more with that. Um, I imagine that the only people paying in sats are the Bitcoiners. Well, I guess now you're shipping across the country, perhaps with the with the new website. But prior to that, um, or even still, even still, it's just you know the Bitcoiners wanting a whack of meat, and they're you know willing to pay in sats. There are are many people availing of that to this point. So at our last event, the Beef Initiative event, a few people got signed up and now they're wanting to use their uh, wallet to, you know, do transactions with me, which is, you know, they'll fiat customers before then. So that's exciting. But it's the 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 Bitcoin, I guess, uh, option hasn't taken any fiat trading away from my business. It's only added Bitcoin trading to my business because there's right. people out there that want to spend it and as soon as someone realizes that you can do it, you post it in that many signal groups and telegram groups and Twitter feeds, and then they all come out of the woodwork. So I'm shipping a lot of meat every week um, down to Melbourne, up to Sydney, across to Canberra from people that are just wanting to buy my meat, uh, specifically primarily because I'm accepting sats, but then they do the research and they realize that the produce is what they want for their family as well. Man, that is that is so cool. I mean, and that's the way it's supposed to be. And that's the way it's happening in many, many areas now, especially with the added, you know, gasoline of the, the beef, beef initiative, you know, bringing these people together and, and creating these relationships. Uh, I love it. Is, is the guy, what would you say the guy that first hit you up proof of work beef? Was that his name? Well, it's, he, it was actually, it was actually proof of work. Honey was what he was trading under because he's um he had beehives and this was his first venture into beef i believe he set up proof of work beef as another company now but his name's john tiernan he's one of the directors of the australian beef initiative he's an awesome guy and like we just had this event with 100 people and he gave a presentation presentation on bitcoin 101 sent everyone in the crowd sats got them all there to download wallet of satoshi sent them all sats in live time to show them how easy it was and then he asked me to email all hundred people a blanket email with his private mobile number and private email address, encouraging them to call him for any and all Bitcoin help they need moving forward. <laughs> the guy is just a uh, absolute powerhouse for the, you know, for the message. 
And I, I love I love what he's doing. For, for me, uh, where I'm at in my Bitcoin journey is I'm just really trying to encourage, you know, everyone's got their own journey. Nothing, I don't think there's any wrong or right, but I'm really trying to encourage people, especially local people here to um, not just stack and hold, but to earn and spend mm-hmm. because, you know, that's the function because one of them is investment to me and obviously store a value, you know, set yourself up, all that stuff's great, but one's investment and and um, one's currency, uh, you know, like, and I, I think if, if everyone that's really serious about Bitcoin just accumulates as much as they can and hold on it, the, the, the economy is going to take longer to get going. So, you know, and whether that means instead of just spending me $200 fiat, that could just mean buying the equivalent in sats and then flicking the sats over. But, you know, so you're not actually losing your stockpile if you, if, if you want to um, sit on that and stack it. But I, I just think that, we, we we need to see more of the actual trading for goods and services if that's what we're wanting it if if we're wanting more people to accept it for goods and services yeah yeah i couldn't agree more and and look i know there's you know capital gains considerations and accounting considerations but you know generally <clears throat> i don't know why you wouldn't spend if you have the opportunity because not o- not only could you just replace it but that $200 you're holding in fiat uh, and spending on the beef, it could have easily just been held in in Bitcoin, right? It's two hundred dollars that still wasn't in Bitcoin, one way or the other. Again, it depends on you know what your tolerance is for the volatility and all that kind of stuff. But uh, I totally agree, you know. And I think a lot more people are beginning to, uh, well, let's put it this way: people have begun, it seems, to reorient their life, and so they hodl as much as they can. But for the things that have, let's say. Uh, ascended their value hierarchy, the things that they deem to be the most important and food and sustenance, healthy food and sustenance that is, you know, aligned with their philosophies or their ethics around its production definitely seems to be one of the things that people deem worthy of spending sats on. And what I hope to see is that it's not just like a parallel economy that's a copy paste of, of the fiat economy, but just transacting in Bitcoin, it's actually an entirely different economy because what's going to happen. And I think, you know, beef and is the first um, exemplar of this is only the things that can compel or extract the sats away from you are going to be the ones are, is, are going to be the things that people spend sats on. Right. And so it has to be extremely high quality, extremely important, extremely meaningful, whatever it is. So whether it's high quality beef and sustenance, whether it's really awesome art, whether it's really great causes that you want to support, like it's going to have to be in that upper strata of really awesome shit to get people to relinquish their sats. But what we're finding, I think, is if it does fall into that, you know, area or category or elevation, people are willing to do it. And, you know, so that's, it's so encouraging because you you wind the clock forward and so at first it's beef and sustenance, and then it becomes all these different things. And, all, you know, over the course of time, you have a parallel economy that is just filled with the most awesome shit, you know, and transacting in a, in a frictionless manner, borderless manner, everyone can be involved, you know, and of course you have the savings element of, of continuing to hodl your, your excess or what you're not spending on, on the things that are most meaningful to you. And, you know, what, what could be better? I mean, th- this is what we're all working towards is is that type of circumstance and market so it's it's really awesome to see that um it's starting with a product like the one that you're selling and 
people like yourself that are aligned with these, you know, certain values and principles and express them through everything that they're doing. I mean, again, th this is always how, this is always how I wanted it to pan out and, and seeing that it is panning out in that way uh, is extremely encouraging. Last one for you, man, and then I'll let you go. But what do you see as, you know, the future of, of your firm? You know, it, it sounds like it's doing extremely well. If that continues, it's, it's probably going to be a very lucrative, you know, so-called business opportunity, but what, what more do you see from it when you look out five, 10, 15 years in the future? Sure. So like I said to you earlier, we're not big planners. We don't have, we don't have timelines, but we are dreamers, you know, and there are, there are things that my wife and I would love for our family and love for our community. So where we, you know, when we're sitting down and the a table uh, talking about where we're headed, uh, we want to move on land and own a, own a piece of land. We don't have to own heaps of land to do what we do. We just want enough space that we can invest in some permanent infrastructure because everything I've got at the moment is mobile. But if you want to do like a red meat abattoir, a small red meat abattoir, a lot more sense to have concrete on the ground. So we want enough land that we can have a family home, some permanent infrastructure there. I'm talking to a few doctors in Australia, but we would really love to have a big hub on our farm. So we would love the abattoir, the butchery, the tannery for making leather goods, uh, the restaurant all to be on site. I spend my whole life driving between businesses. I want to get out of the car <laughs> and into the pasture. Right. We would love to have staff quarters. Um, we're homeschoolers. So some, some facilities to service homeschooling for us in our community because we do homeschoolers share a lot of classes. So even though we're all individually responsible for uh, maintaining our child's progression, we do get together and do joint activities all the time. And we love our church. I've got this little dream in the back of my head of the, uh, the little church on the, on the top of the hill, doubling up as the classroom for all the homeschool kids to come and do their uh, arithmetic once a week or whatever it might be. And then we'd also love to have ecotourism on our property so people can pay and have a farm stay. And we're talking to these doctors about having a decentralized uh, health retreat. So you can actually come to the farm with you. Like we want to get into preventative health. So we don't want to be a triage-based system or a, a pill dispensary. We want people who go, you know what? Like we're not, we're not, uh, we're not dying. We're not uh, in in mortal pain, but we know that life could be better if we were healthier. And we're going to go to this place where we can stay for a week, do a tea, detox, do a heap of education with all these different doctors, access food to shore up our food lines moving forward, and actually. Uh, get into a decentralized health system where, where they can be given information and, and um, you know, help and care that they wouldn't normally be getting get in a status quo health industry. Uh, and, and that's sort of, and then obviously all the enterprises need to scale around that. So we're breeding, I've got about 60 cows that I'm breeding at the moment and our whole herd, including calves and steers is around hundred at the moment. Um, I'm pushing as fast as I can to get to 500 cows. I think to sustain a, a little abattoir on our farm and all the other overheads, that, that's sort of where we need to be. Um, so I've, I'm, I'm breeding this amazing species of cow called Nguni. They're a South African genetic, uh, just incredible animals, small framed, highly fertile, disease resistant, uh, very maternal. Yeah, very, and they've got 80 different colored hides. So when you, when you want to value add to your animal to respect the whole animal and, and create leather goods, you've got a, you've got a big catalog of SKUs there, which is exciting to me. So, you know, it, so on top of all of those infrastructures and um, complementary enterprises that we're dreaming about, the whole farm has to scale 
to reach that. So in regenerative agriculture, there's a, there's a large portion of the market that romanticizes staying micro because it's more community-based. It's uh, just you and your neighbor. It, it's getting out of big business and monopolies and all these things that are um, deemed to be evil. Uh, that's fine. I think we need more farmers. More small farmers is great because it uh, gives you know resiliency to certain communities and production types. Uh, but there is people in Sydney and there's people in large metro areas that need to um, source food and there needs to be producers to to give it to them. And my primary objectives is to get animals out of sheds, restore landscapes and feed people food that's going to make them healthier. So we're bullish about scaling our enterprise. We're romanticizing growing bigger, not romanticizing staying smaller. And uh, we, we have absolutely have growth um you know as what we're sort of working towards because the market needs it you know people need access to this stuff landscapes need restoring mm -hmm. and it's all well and good to say all the small farmers are going to do it but where are they uh you know there's a lot of landscape we've got millions and millions of acres around the world that's being um you know managed to not to the potential so we're going to do as much as we can to do our part well, that sounds awesome, man. And that's a amazing dream. And it sounds like um, you're kind of putting together a, a Citadel sort of vision there, you know, all the all the essential bits and pieces with with like minded people that uh, can contribute to it, support it, avail of it in, in many different ways, I'm sure. So it sounds like a phenomenal dream to be uh, working towards. And thank I've you. Actually man. Got, is... If I could another 20 seconds but i've actually got this yeah. dream in australia you can lease really marginal land very cheap like scrubland off in the bush yeah uh very cheap and the but it's not very productive obviously the cattle of the breed of cattle that i'm uh breeding is thrives in those events they're made for really low fertility events which is one of the reasons i've um, sidestepped into them um i've got this little niggling dream in the back of my head there's only 250 of these animals in the country purebred because they're, they're quite um new in the in the so we're just building up numbers but i've got this dream in the back of my head of leasing uh you know 50,000 acres of this marginal country towards central australia and putting a thousand nguni on it uh with the the bitcoin logo branded on their rump and having a big Bitcoin herd. I thought, how cool, if, if you want to own 20 cows or 50 cows or 10 cows, do crowdfund a herd and have this Bitcoin herd of these apocalyptic cows out in the Aussie bush. I just think that that'd be so fun. So maybe that'll happen in the next few years too. Yeah, well, that sounds pretty awesome. And I'm sure you get a lot of support from the Bitcoin crowd for something like that, whether it be sats or word of you know spreading the word or anything like that. I'm sure they'd be super into it. Um, well, man, thanks for, uh, getting up early in the morning for this conversation. It's been, uh, really enjoyable, enlightening, and, you know, I, I love what you're doing. I love the attitude you bring to it. And, uh, yeah, I wish you nothing but uh, success in the future. And, and hopefully we can have another chat sometime, maybe a year, 18 months and, and see where things are at then. Awesome. Yeah, John, thanks for having me. I've had a lot of fun. All right, brother. Take care. See ya. See ya.
Pump, 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 pump,